0: Hello, friends. Welcome back to another episode of Theology in the Raw. If you would like to support the show, you can go to patreon.com forward slash Theology in the Raw. Support the show for as little as five bucks a month. get access to uh, premium content like Q&A, podcasts, and blogs, and so on and so forth. Also, if you have not signed up yet for the Theology in the Raw conference next spring, then you want to do so. ASAP space is filling up. You can go to pressandsprinkle.com. For all the info on that, my guest today is my longtime and very good friend, Dr. Tim Gambis. Tim and I met shortly after he graduated from seminary. We we both went to the same seminary at different times, and then we both ended up in Scotland doing PhDs at different universities in Scotland, and then ended up at Cedarville University, finally, as colleagues. And he has just been a, a great friend over the years. He's an amazing scholar. He has a PhD in New Testament from St. Andrew's University, has written a lot of books, including The Story of God, Commentary on Mark, and the recently released Power in Weakness, which is uh, the subject of much of our conversation. He's been a professor at Cedarville University and also at Grand Rapids Theological Seminary. So uh, this is a long, long overdue conversation. Please welcome to the show for the first time, the one and only Dr. Tim Gompas. Hi, right, hey friends. Welcome back to another episode of Theology and Rahm here with, I, I think, one of my oldest or long-term friends that I've ever had on the podcast. I mean, we go back to, let's see, I graduated. You graduated seminary in... Oh, 2000. Oh, 2000? Yeah. So I didn't know you. I remember seeing you walk the stage at graduation. And oh, really? for some reason, your name stood out. And then when I started exploring doing a PhD in Paul uh, uh, Grisanti... Um, our old Testament prof, he says, oh, yeah. well, do you know, Tim Gombus? Like, well, I know the name. He's like, yeah, he's at St. Andrews studying Paul. You should reach out to him. And that's when I emailed you. you I don't even yeah, know if you know this. Right. Okay. I emailed you and just said, Hey, I'm into this Paul thing. I don't know what to do. I think I might want to do a PhD over in Scotland somewhere. What should I do? Do you, you probably yeah. don't remember what your response you said probably go grab. You were,
1: you were uh, cleaning pools at the time. <laughs> yeah, was
0: dude. That was my best job. It's been all downhill from there. That was my favorite job. I ever. hear you, man. Um, you said well, will go read NT Wright's "What Saint Paul Really Said" and uh-huh. go from there. Send me an email when you're done. <laughs> I was like, "Who's NT Wright?" Like I've already read, you know, John MacArthur on Paul. I've read, you know, you know. I've even expanded my horizons Piper. and read like Piper and others. Yeah, <laughs> that's was, that was the extent of my life. Yeah.
1: You're digging deep.
0: Yeah, yeah, um, and you're like NT. I'm like, who's this guy? I, I never, I'll never forget going to a coffee shop Saturday morning in Newhall, California, and spent about four hours reading that book. And my, my life—I don't want to be overly dramatic. I, I can easily say this: my academic trajectory was forever changed.
1: Oh he, wow! Because
0: it's so, you That's know awesome. everything he says is so scholarly, but he made it so exciting and adventurous. Yeah. and compelling. Like, I'm re- I'm I'm dealing with these familiar categories like God's faithfulness and righteousness, in ways that I've never even thought about before. So totally. I'm like,
1: yeah. this
0: is un- How come we're not reading this in sem? How come like, in my mind was forever blown. I mean, it was crazy. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. There intro. are reasons
1: why we weren't reading in seminary. <laughs> everything had to be tidy and like tight and like all the edges rubbed off and everything yeah. had to fit into nice neat categories.
0: Which he was is- he was he had already written like. Three of his huge books, I think, or two maybe.
1: Yeah. Yeah, the resurrection
0: think, book hadn't come out. He'd written Jesus and the Victory of God, written several books on Paul, and I'd never even heard of him.
1: Sorry, I got cats jumping all over my oh, telephone. Right.
0: <laughs> <laughs> anyway, that was 2002. Yeah, wrote, um,
1: the, two, the, the first two big ones, I think, at that point, I think that book came out in 97. Yeah. Uh, what St. Paul really said. And then, um, yeah, so that was 2000. And then in 2002, did you, did you and Chris come over?
0: That was yeah, that's uh, so I think it was two thousand and either two thousand two, two thousand three, we went and toured Scotland. I visited Aberdeen, St. Andrews, stayed with you and Sarah and the family. Yeah. And uh I think that was the first time we saw each other in person, remember, hung yeah, out
1: was that's right.
0: Dude, that was almost 20 years ago. Look at us. Crazy gray hair.
1: That's crazy. <laughs> I know. Falling apart. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> okay, so let's direction.
0: for for people that don't know who, know who you are. Um just give us a quick snapshot who you are where you grew up tell us about your academic journey and where you are now
1: uh well the high point of my life um was 2007 when we won the intramural softball (laughs) championship (laughs) (laughs) i it's so this is the stupidest thing in the world how much that means to me like i i'm like that was such a great Cedarville at cedarville (laughs) Yeah, when we won, it was like – that was so great.
0: Oh, my gosh.
1: Yeah, I uh, – what's to say? I'm from Chicago, grew up in the Chicago suburbs, um, uh, wanted to be a lawyer back in the 80s Right before I went to college, uh, switched tracks and started studying philosophy and then theology, uh, went Liber- to seminary. Did you go to Liberty? Yeah, I was at – went to Liberty University, studied um, political science. And then, um, but minored in uh, in philosophy and theology. And by the time I got done, I couldn't I couldn't care less about mm. you know political science. I, I wanted to go to seminary. Just I had so many questions I wanted to pursue. And um, yeah, after I, I, did, I graduated with an MDiv in '97, and then uh, took a few years to do a ThM. And um, by then, I think. You know, being at that seminary and being at that church, big church, a lot of power and money and you know, a mega church, mm-hmm. just was like, something's wrong here. Uh, this is Something's wrong here with the way we're thinking. Something's wrong here with the way that this place really functions like a corporation and was ready for something different, but didn't know what that was yet. So in 2000, uh, we left the States and moved to St. Andrews, where we lived for four years while I did my PhD on... Ephesians. And um, that was, those were some of the best times of our lives yeah. because they were so transformative. I mean, just being in a, a very different kind of a, a community, an academic community. Um, can you describe
0: that different academic community? Because I mean, I, I experienced the same thing coming out of the same yeah. background, but for people that don't know what you mean.
1: Yeah. Well, having grown up in an environment that was oriented by safety, finding out, you know, learning all the answers Mm -hmm. and, and finding out how to live a life where you have have all these guaranteed outcomes, you know, live a certain way, um, read scripture in a certain way, uh, go about having a certain kind of spirituality, everything will work out in your marriage with your kids, Mm -hmm. you know, um, it's basically the American dream, you know, with, you know, Bible verses and Jesus attached and um, uh, things did not work out that way for us. We we had we had trouble. We we had some pain. We we had lost um, a number of pregnancies, and um, we have three healthy children. But, um, and then also, uh, sort of academically or ideologically, I took seriously everything that was said at our church and at the seminary about how, you know. Uh, go at this text, and whatever you come up with, that's what you know. That's where you go with it, and you draw your theological conclusions after doing your exegesis. Well, I did that and differed with my supervisor, and was like, "No, you're wrong because I I think this." And even if I could show him from the text a better way of thinking, it didn't matter. He was, you know, hmm. he was the man. Um, so I started to see that there, there's other stuff at work here. There are other ideologies. There are other rules that I've obviously broken that I didn't know about. And I'm, you know, I'm a very loyal person. I'm like, I I wanted to do what was right here, but it didn't work. So, uh, we just were ready for something different and didn't know what that exactly would look like. But, um, I knew I wanted to do biblical studies, PhD. So, um, started in on that. Hold on. These cats are this is the afternoon. They're like lively. They want to they want to climb all over everything. (laughs) They um um so that that environment at St. Andrews at the time was a really, really rich um theological studies um group of people and then biblical studies group of people. Mm -hmm. And uh Christians Christians from all over the world from from different places in North America Uh, from some, from very different traditions than what I was used to and all, you know, seeking to be faithfully Christian and, you know, all my categories were sort of upset Hmm. and, um, was introduced to just richer ways of thinking that it took me a while to get my head around. Hmm. And, um, so that was four years of that. And our closest friends at the time, um, all had, um, real trouble. Uh, one guy went through liver failure. He had he had to have a liver transplant, and you know and that was a crisis for their family. Another uh, couple had a stillborn child. You know, mm-hmm. we all rallied um, to support and love them. Uh, we had lost uh, some pregnancies, and we felt the love of the community. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we formed rich friendships. And it wasn't it wasn't all academic or ideological. It was practical, relational, communal. And um, when we came back to the states in 2004, you know, we were we had had contact with something richer and deeper and profounder, and um, so yeah, that was transformative for for how I read scripture and how I thought about God and how I thought about being Christian in the world. And um, mm-hmm. so yeah, I taught uh, for seven years at Cedarville University in, in Ohio. Mm-hmm. And then for the last 10 years, I taught at Grand Rapids Theological Seminary. Um, And yeah, so we still live here in Grand Rapids.
0: Written several books. Uh, Your recent one is um, Power and Weakness, Paul's Transformed Vision for Ministry, which I really want to get to. Um, Well, and I don't want to go back and dig, but you're, you're, I don't know, if you want to even talk about it, but your your THM thesis... Do you want to talk about the the THM thesis? experience? anything anything you want, man. Okay, so I I remember hearing about your experience writing your THM thesis on Paul, Paul and the law, and I don't want to say too much, but I just remember that, that, that your experience kind of illustrated kind of a bigger problem slash issue um, in maybe evangelicalism or kind of quote-unquote biblical Christianity. Do you want to unpack that a little bit? I thought it, it was just, it really helped, yeah. helped me. I mean, it was kind of disturbing, but it was also like helped me kind of see some stuff going on and, and me wanting to not do that, to be faithful to the scriptures and yet not think that if I add up all the exegetical things, spit out the right answer than that. It, you know, like it's just more messy than that. Um, yeah, totally. So what was your experience like writing your thesis?
1: <laughs> yeah, so I, um, w- when I started seminary in 94, I was in a Bible study uh, that was a bunch of like reformed people, mm-hmm. reformed Lutheran. I mean, I don't think they really knew w- what they were doing necessarily, except that they had had this kind of hard law gospel contrast sort of thing. And um, It just never sat right with me. I I could, you know, because I think when I had really gotten turned on about being a Christian in my college years, I just read Deuteronomy over and over and over. And it just was like, it just screamed love. It was just about love of neighbor, love of God, creative love. And um, I I could not get my head around um, how the law could have been a bad thing. And, um, Psalm 19, Psalm 119 had meant mm-hmm. so much to me, um, as a young Christian person. So I always had wanted to go to work on that. Like, how, how do I put that together biblically, theologically? Mm-hmm. And, um, so one passage that I, I just could never reconcile or get my head around was Galatians 3, 10 to 14. Like, how, how does that work? Mm-hmm. I know you've done work on this. We probably don't think the same way about it, but um, <laughs> which is fine. I hate the law. But, I hate the law.
0: I'm, <laughs> I'm anti <anti-nome. laughs>
1: So, um, uh, yeah, I just I had offered a different interpretation of it, an interpretation of that passage that I thought was satisfying. I thought it was hermeneutically solid, and resonated with the whole argument of the letter. Mm. And and, um, you had
0: scholarly backing too. It's not like you oh, came totally. up with some far fetched interpretation. It was kind of like this. No, within scholarship, it was I don't want to say mainstream, but it was one of the
1: kind of main things that scholars. What's well, were- an available reading? Right, and then also, um, there's like that passage. There's there's either quote unquote a kind of a typical you know traditional interpretation, sort of. But even there, there's like there's it, it's a passage where there's just a ton of disagreement. Right as you know. So it's like, all right, what I'm going to do is take seriously, um, each of the old, the controlling interpretive key there is going to be the old Testament quotes in their original context. And then right. whatever Paul's statements are, they're just going to be based off of that. And well, you know, right or wrong, that's, that's just using a method that I was taught by my supervisor. Um, but found out that because I disagreed with him and, you know, the president of the seminary took a different view of this very, very difficult passage that, that I, it was ruled out that I'd get, I would get failed. So I was like, what is the deal? Like, I thought like, wait a minute, I did everything you said. Like I'm using all the, you know, the interpretive methods that you showed me. I followed everything that you've told me to do. You know, the pastor of the church, the president of the seminary, John MacArthur had said for years, you know, um, my number one goal when I read the passage is, is to get myself out of the text. So I'm like, I take you seriously, Dr. John. You don't matter when it comes to reading the Bible. Do you know what I mean? Like what you say. What matters is, you know, reading the text well. So, um, but I found out that's not at all the case. Like there are unwritten rules. Like, you know, when it comes, push comes to shove, whatever Pastor John says is what is. Mm-hmm. And began to see that in this, um, you know, you could have a doctrinal statement of an organization, but what really matters is what powerful people have to say. Um, You know, the the person that runs the organization or whatever, that's what matters. That it's it's actually not this kind of uh, egalitarian, you know, we're all brothers and sisters in Christ and whatever – from from whatever quarter, if there's a, a challenging Bible reading that we haven't considered, like, we'll take it on board because what matters is God's word above everything. Mm-hmm. Well, I re- found out that's not how it goes. You know, <laughs> um, the powerful people. Uh, what is that one Disney film? It's the Golden Rule? The one with the gold makes the rules? <laughs> <laughs> was that? Was Jafar say that? <laughs> see this is a, yeah, see raising kids in the you know in the nineties watching Disney films. So um So you had to rewrite yeah, Did, re- dis- Did
0: you have to rewrite dis- it? Or like you said, Well, I want to graduate, I've done all this work and
1: Yeah. So what I said was um this is this is my final academic exercise. Um I very well may not be right in the interpretation that I'm offering. I I don't I don't I haven't found anybody else that says what I've said here. <laughs> So I'm just going to complete the academic exercise as I'm assigned and do it in a way that will pass. You know, I just want to get through Um, because what matters is it's an assignment. I'm just going to take it as that. Um, So, yeah, that's what I did. And uh, later went back to work on that passage. Um, It may have been about seven or eight years later and published my interpretation in New Testament studies, which I'm far happier that it came out in that venue uh, rather than sat in the, you know, the basement of a library, you know, somewhere in Southern California.
0: Just so people know the gist, and then we we can move on to your new book, but um, you know, there's a lot of contrasts in that passage, typically around law gospel themes, law faith, law spirit. And, (laughs) There is an interesting use of the Old Testament there too. So that so you have two th- two main things going on. Is Paul saying faith is against law? Are they, you know, or are they more or are they correlated in ways that don't seem as visible at first glance? But if you look at the original context of the Old Testament quotations. Maybe he's kind of doing something there. So there's there's a lot of intersecting exegetical questions that you have to wrestle with. But that's the basic gist. Is it, yeah, it are are these categories law, faith, law, gospel, law, spirit? You know, Deuteronomy and and Leviticus and Habakkuk. Are they being? Are, is there more correlation or more discontinuity here? And within that, I think I mean I would look at my dissertation, but 10, 12 different interpretive approaches. It's not like there's like one or two or three or five. There's like so many different takes on this passage. It is, I think one, I think it was James Dunn said, it's like one of the most, if not the most complex passages in all of Paul. So anyway, so just, I mean, that just adds to the, your story that to think there's one hands down clear cut, if you don't take this view, you're not being biblical interpretation is just I mean, it's yeah. it's exegetically, I think, irresponsible, if not naive, really.
1: Yeah, and it shows up how any, any interpretive community um, can sort of throw around that language. Like, you're not being biblical, or you are being biblical, yeah. or you've got to be biblical. All that means is what we've agreed to say, the Bible says. You know, I mean, it's just that kind of language can be um, exploited. Um, yeah, yeah it was a very interesting... In fact, that whole experience—the last couple of years there—is what led me to investigate uh, the powers and authorities for my dissertation on Ephesians, because really? um, I began to see that um, there's something something happens um, in, in in like sort of a large you know, when a church gets big and becomes an organization. Uh, and becomes this institution, there's, it's almost like these other rules unintentionally sort of take over and like social dynamics take over so that a community that wants to do good ends up, uh, fostering injustice or ends up chewing people up or ends up like bringing about, uh, situations that are painful. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I saw staff pastors being mistreated there. I, there was a lot of, there was a lot of, bad things that I had seen. And I just thought this is something's something's messed up here. Mm -hmm. There so anyway, um Mm -hmm. when I did my dissertation on Ephesians and looking at the powers and authorities, there are some theorists, like people like Marva Dawn, Mm -hmm. um, that will talk a lot about institutional life and about how in Marva Dawn's book, um, Powers, Weakness and the Tabernacling of God, she talks about how churches can become powers. Um, and end up fostering wow. oppression rather than human flourishing, which is really interesting. Wow! But that's wow. that's when I started to see it. Like something's messed up here. Yeah. What yeah. is it? You know? Yeah. But anyway. something that's
0: more structural. Something that's not. Not it, it, It's like in the air. It's a mindset. It's an ideology. It's it's right. I mean, that's it's, it's yeah, kind of totally. like. I mean, not, we're not going to two white guys are going to get into race conversation, but that I mean, when we talk about like structural. Systemic racism and, and a lot of white people I think just don't have a category for like what is that? Well, wait, no I'm against racists, they're like well yeah, me too. Everybody all are, but like yeah. there's so there they're at least very well could be biblically there's these categories of more broader structural themes oh, that totally. are related to people but not reduced to individuals.
1: Um, yeah, that's right. Like there are there, there are probably better categories for talking about structural and systemic evils. Than merely individual uh, acts of sin. Hmm. Um, I mean, this is all the prophets talk about this sort of stuff. Hmm. John the Baptist, Jesus. um, I mean, Jesus in Mark has all these kind of broad brushes whenever he confronts any group of people, because like you can talk about corporate behaviors and the way that uh, you know they they typically act and and the injustices they typically carry out, but for Jews of you know, Paul's era and Jesus's era, they had language to talk about all this. And it was the powers and authorities, these, these sort of um, hostile cosmic powers that foster oppression and that uh, work at the structural or systemic yeah. level to bring about um, forms of life that degrade humanity and that, yeah. that um, exploit and that oppress. So yeah, unfortunately, you know, uh, white evangelicalism, Um, is very uncomfortable with all of that. Um, but it's, it's because we don't know our Bibles as well as we should. Um, Mm -hmm. so that we, we can't analyze the slippery and, uh, insidious character of sin that, Exists at the structural and systemic mm-hmm. level, and the and the individual level. Sure,
0: it's not an either it's, or. It's right a, no, it, yeah.
1: No, totally. Yeah, it's both and. It's Absolutely. all over the
0: place. I'm not a Revelation guy scholar, but it's, it seems to be all over the place in Revelation. Like, like, oh yeah. When John says to the church, you know, <clears throat> uh, come out of her, like her being Babylon. He's not saying yeah. like geographically move outside of the Roman Empire. He's yeah. saying come out of the way of the Babylonian totally. way of life, right? The system. And even yep. there in that context, I think it's the economic system. It's, that's built on injustice and, um, don't participate in that system, which is. But I mean, really I, threatening. It's, really it's, it's
1: very uncomfortable as a privileged, oh, very man. comfortable middle-class person to read the new Testament. I mean, <laughs> and you know, especially <laughs> revelation. Well, I mean, just, I mean, Mark's gospel is terrifying as a person, uh, who has a comfortable life? It really is upsetting huh. uh, because Jesus is doing uh, many of the very same things here. I mean, he huh. he's on a his destination is Jerusalem, and he's going to face all of the systemic and structural injustices fostered by the temple leadership because the temple has become, in Mark anyway, I know you know temp, New Testament writers do different things with the temple, but in Mark the temple has become this God-abandoned place that's fostering oppression. Hmm. And um like the widow the widow that gives her last penny there uh, is used ambiguously by mark she's she's um, she's a model of sacrificial giving, but she's also someone who's exploited. She has nothing left and she's given it to these people who, hmm. you know who have everything. so hmm. it's really. Anyway.
0: You you've always been a fan of Mark. I have mean, heard, heard I've, as a Paul guy, I've always heard you talk about Mark probably more than oh, Paul. Yeah. What 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 do you like about Mark? The gospel of Mark?
1: Um when I was in St. Andrews, uh, I had a friend uh, my gospel's education in seminary was was really awful. It uh got to get this kid out of here. These cats. <laughs> how many cats do you have? I haven't seen a they're, single cat. These two twin boys. They're lurking uh, right behind my <laughs> computer here. Um, the uh, When I was in San Diego, I had a friend who had done Mark, and I just had no clue about how to handle the Gospels because in seminary it was like all you do with the Gospels is take pericope by pericope and establish its historical reliability right. and like well why would I do this is boring I, I hate this. <laughs> um, but he introduced me to a literary way of reading uh, the Gospels and we just we worked through Mark a bunch hmm. and it was so compelling and revolutionary to me I it just blew my mind hmm. and um, and then I guess it was maybe ten years ago uh, I got invited to do the Mark volume for the Story of God commentary series oh. that um, took me a lot longer than I thought it would. But I, that was like my Gospels education that I never had. I wanted to just read a ton on narrative, read a ton on uh, how the Gospels are at work. And um, so, yeah, I spent about seven years in Mark, and I just mm-hmm. couldn't get enough of it. It was so thrilling, but it's it is utterly – it It tore me up. Like it mm-hmm. really just eviscerated me. what What's happening there is really frightening um, with Jesus, you know, basically um, highlighting how, you know the disciples are completely negatively portrayed in Mark. Mm-hmm. They get everything wrong. And of course, the Pharisees and Sadducees are completely unjust. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, everybody gets it wrong except for all of these social outsiders. Um, the Syrophoenician woman, uh, the woman who's got the hemorrhage, the demon-possessed man, like they're all the ones who are getting Jesus, who 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 run to him and fall down. You know, they see, they run to him and fall down, or they hear, they run to him and fall down. The disciples never see, they never hear, and they never respond well to Jesus, and neither does anybody else that you think should. And I'm just sitting here doing this study thinking, like, well, um, I'm a Bible scholar and I teach the Bible study the text all day long, you know, where do I map myself in the gospel of Mark? And it's like, I'm a Pharisee. I'm not even a disciple. I'm a, this, They're the Bible scholars of the first century. Hmm. They're the ones who are passionate about God's holiness. And I'm just like, man, this is just, this is just frightening. Hmm. And, um, what Jesus has to say about money there, um, yeah, what he, what he has to say about, uh, what matters in being a disciple is, is just, it's, it's a scary kind of a gospel to read. And, uh, when I was doing that study, all I could do is like turn and look at my inherited evangelical culture and just think we are, we are exactly what Mark is written against. This is frightening. So, um, anyway, it's a, it's a challenge. Mark is really, a challenge, and yeah. it's really—I um, think it's really life-giving, and it's mysterious, and it's—it's it's sort of ambiguous. There's no answers. It—it hmm. uh, it ends on a, on a downer of a note. Yeah, the last sentence is the women uh, did not go tell the disciples because they were afraid. You don't take the
0: longer ending of Mark? Not the,
1: <laughs> oh, no, nobody does. No? <laughs> really? <laughs> so 16-7, yeah,
0: six, yeah. Is it verse 7, verse 8, or whatever? it was? like they were afraid, yeah, so that, that's eight. how Mark ended his gospel?
1: That's the end. It's like yeah.
0: Lamentations. Almost.
1: <laughs> oh, totally. And it's it's really, um, I th- I think that <clears throat> what it's designed to do is leave audiences upset and unsettled.
0: Like Jonah. And it's like a Jonah, right?
1: Yeah, yeah. Huh. And just sort of say, wait a minute, let's go back to the beginning, because at the very end, the message that uh, the, the young man wants the women to deliver to Peter and the disciples is um, go back to Galilee where he's going to meet you. Mm-hmm. And so there's this indication that it's like, all right, if we started this whole thing over again, it, this whole gospel went wrong. It's like a, it's a, the gospel went wrong, basically, is the title of Mark. Um <laughs> What if we started this over in Galilee again? How how should it go right? How should the disciples have responded? Um, what what does Jesus expect from the Pharisees or the Sadducees or you know what what should the disciples have done in Gethsemane? Um, that's a question I always had. I mean, they were supposed to pray and watch so that they didn't fall into temptation, which they didn't do. They fell into temptation, but what were they supposed to do? Like knowing that when Peter tries to violently defend Jesus, that is the embodiment of his falling asleep. Like, he didn't watch and pray. He gave in to temptation. He fell asleep, Hmm. which for him, that was acting out in violence. Hmm. Because the gospel in Mark, the word of uh, the word, um, is the gospel of the the cross, that the kingdom is shaped thoroughly by the cross. I mean, Jesus is raised up. he, He ascends his throne, which is the cross. So if it's this nonviolent gospel of cruciformity, then what would it look like for Peter to have been awake and alert hmm. in in Gethsemane, you know, and for the rest of the disciples? Yeah. Um, which I don't know. It's kind of interesting. I think that would be a great discussion to have for, uh, for audiences of, wow. of Mark's gospel.
0: That I mean, that, that kind of ties in. Not, it's a good segue to your more recent book because a lot a lot of what you're saying. It sounds like – I haven't read your latest book, but is that kind of the foundation of of Paul's ministry, his power and weakness? I mean, because that this power and weakness seems to be a consistent theme in Paul, which I imagine oh, is yeah. probably the main thread of your book. But um, yeah, yeah g- give us a snapshot of your book and then how that – I think Paul's vision for ministry can be both prophetically critical of and, and formative of how we should do ministry today.
1: Yeah, so um – this, I, I was awakened to this when I was doing my doctoral work on Ephesians because um, in Ephesians 2, Paul lists the triumphs of God in Christ. Mm-hmm. God triumphs over Satan and the powers of evil by pulling people out of death and giving them life. And then in the second half of the chapter, God triumphs over the powers who have fostered uh, ethnic hostility. Mm-hmm. Um, talk about fruitful material to talk about race. Um, the powers of authorities were at work in creating ethnic hostility and God has made the the two one in christ united them together and um that the triumph of God is then embodied in chapter three by Paul working out his ministry while in prison so he he occupies this unbelievably privileged position while also occupying a socially shameful one and that's by design like that's kind of if you are the emissary of a cross-shaped Messiah, your life has to look cross-shaped. So something wrong if you are, you know, uh, a representative of a cross-shaped Messiah and your life looks like power and prestige and privilege. Something's off there. That's Paul's whole thing in Second Corinthians with the yeah. super apostles. So um, over the last ten or so years, teaching people in ministry or headed for ministry. Um, just talking about cruciformity and how that looks out, how that works out in ministry in in a seminary classroom, this book started to take shape. And so what I do is I compare Paul's pre-conversion ministry mode with his post-conversion ministry mode. Because um, Paul would have seen himself before his conversion as ministering on behalf of the one true God. Mm-hmm. And what he was trying to do was to accomplish God's purposes. Bringing about resurrection life on earth for Israel um, through coercion, through power, um, through the cultivation of a social persona marked by prestige and accomplishment and mm-hmm. impressive credentials, like he talks about in Philippians three. He talks. Um, he talks about um, actual violence and verbal violence. Mm-hmm. Um, he talks in, in Galatians 1 about how he was advancing beyond his contemporaries in zeal. Mm-hmm. And so it's like, um, I think there's a lot of fruitful material there uh, for reflecting on ministry dynamics, you know, characterized by um, all, all of the realities that we find in the present evil age. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, power, prestige, uh, self-advancement, self-protection um, you know, platform building, mm-hmm. uh, credential accumulation. Uh, I mean, yeah, there's, there's all kinds of ways in which kind of American ideologies have overtaken and swallowed up and reconfigured pastoral ministry. Mm. And, um, I mean, you know, companies selling products and conferences mm-hmm. will advertise in ways that, um, exploit ministers insecurities, you know, I mean, Mm. being in pastoral ministry is so difficult. It is so difficult, filled with insecurity and fear and anxiety. And so, I mean, all you have to do to market any kind of a product or conference is to say, you know, this is going to basically make you feel really equipped to handle all the ministry pressures you're going to be facing, all that kind of stuff. Mm. And you can prey on pastoral anxieties all day long and make, make a lot of money, which I'm People are doing. Wow. Anyway, I talk about um, Paul's pre-conversion ministry mode, and then um, his. I, I sort of imagine. So people have done this over the generations. Stan Porter wrote a book on this, which I I don't know if anybody else couldn't have gotten all, could have gotten a whole book out of it. But just the question: did did Paul ever meet Jesus? You know, during his earthly ministry. And um, if you imagine that Paul knew anything about Jesus, uh, certainly when Jesus died, his opinion about Jesus was that he was a sinner and that God had cursed him because he's hung on a tree. Mm -hmm. And um, so Paul goes about serving the God of Israel by trying to stamp out the Jesus movement, because the more the Jesus movement grows, the greater the number of sinners in Israel and the less likely the god of israel is going to, you know, redeem israel or rescue right. them from the oppression. And so Jesus is the sinner and everybody attached to him are sinners. So when he sees Jesus exalted to the right hand of the heavenly throne uh, and and resurrected and exalted and vindicated by God, um it's it's hard to even imagine the revolutions that would have that Paul would have gone through in his mind. Mm -hmm. Like this person is in a cursed sinner and God has vindicated him. And, um, resurrection has actually happened to this one person. Whereas I thought it was going to work out, you know, nationwide with, with Israel and creation wide. So, um, if God vindicates and pours out resurrection on this person whose life was shaped by the cross, uh, that has to radically reshape Paul's ministry style. It, it his ministry has to be shaped by the cross, and he has to himself become a sinner. Um, you know, not to go out and start sinning, but that's his self identity now. Mm. I am the one who's far from God. Mm. You know, I'm the one who's an outsider, and God has welcomed me. Mm. So that that changes the way that you minister. That yeah. you're you're not the one who has all the answers or all the power or all the, you know, you're not the one that has God and you dole him out. Mm um you you are standing alongside others as we are all together welcomed mm-hmm. by God in Christ you
0: know, it's fascinating we we often think of like Paul's conversion and i think that in, in you know in Paul's circles that's debated whether that's even the right language you know mm-hmm. <clears throat> um but we often think like he's this like like when we th- when we say conversion it's like yeah my neighbor was a pagan and was an atheist and he got converted to Jesus and now he's religious you know and and yeah. so when we talk about Paul's conversion it, we almost have that kind of Way of thinking, but it's almost like he's—you can almost put put him in the context of like a believer, <laughs> yeah. Who like meets Jesus and realizes his whole religious worldview was wrong.
1: Yeah, totally.
0: It'd be like any yeah, so, like an evangelical meeting Jesus, and then
1: yeah,
0: Jesus saying, "Wait, you think my Funny, Bible? Not you think the Bible's reason. inerrant? You think like I'm God? Like Trinity? What the heck's Like it would almost be like, what, would Like my whole religious existence." Yeah. Was wrong, not my religious existence, not my yes, you know, pagan totally. existence or something.
1: Yeah, it's not all about power. It's not yeah. all about the culture war. It's not all right. about you know <laughs> pulling the levers of the Republican Party. It's not about that at all. Um, yeah, was, for it sure. only took
0: you forty minutes to get there, Tim. But I'm glad you did that.
1: <laughs> this. Is it? I mean, this is the this is the evangelicalism that I was raised in. That. Um, you know, we've got to fight for America, fight the culture culture wars. We've got to win. We've got to yeah. keep sin at bay, and all that kind of stuff. Um, I think that that there could hardly be a more exact representation of Paul's way of thinking as a Pharisee, yeah. um, as a pre-converted Pharisee. He never stops being a Pharisee. Um, but I, I I like that term conversion, in the way like Richard Hayes uses it, a conversion of the imagination. Oh, right. So it's like this—a complete revolution of thought, mm-hmm. um, and, and and a whole new way of seeing, and a whole new way of understanding myself and and my place in God's world, and my place among God's people. So Paul, after his conversion, it's complete. His ministry is shaped by humility, shaped by self-giving love. Shaped by, um, he reconsiders his his uh, mission of credential accumulation in Philippians three. And sees that as crap, and wants to now cultivate mm-hmm. a mode of life characterized by identity with Christ's sufferings, mm-hmm. identification with his sufferings, and to be like him in his death. So instead of looking like a well-polished, you know, public speaker, he wants to look as much like a rotting corpse on a tree as mm-hmm. possible. That's his aim now. Gosh. So uh, I mean, if you yeah, if you start thinking about all of these passages and about. You know Galatians four, where he is, um, he's probably arrived in Galatia. You know, in his first visit there, he says that my, you know, my appearance put you to the test. So he probably was just beaten up before his arrival there, and and probably had like, you know, looked horrible. Yeah. Um, so it's like this is how this is his ministry mode, and how how does all of that challenge our well-polished evangelical? Um, you know, American celebrified way of doing all of this, hmm. you know. So I try to yeah. do that in the book and try to meditate on that. And admittedly, it's like I'll I need to say this. Um, the book is written from the perspective of a white man. Yeah. Because, you know, evangelical Christianity and American Christianity has centered white men. Mm-hmm. And so the way that we need to be shaped by the cross, I think, is to is to see ourselves as decentered. And so that we can then come alongside of all the people that have been on the margins the whole time, Mm -hmm. because the word of the cross, in my opinion, to women, to people of color, um, uh, the word of the cross is not going to be necessarily a word of self-sacrifice or, um, giving up privilege because they've had privileges taken Mm -hmm. away for generations or Mm -hmm. for a long time. Yeah. And so the word of the cross, I think, in many ways, is an invitation to the center, so that all of us are meeting as siblings and and co citizens and, and and partners, and there's no like um, there are no hierarchies.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, I, you, I, I
1: realize that the book is written from that perspective. Yeah. Of no, course, it, I wrote it. <laughs> white, on, unapologetic white man. <laughs> um,
0: as you look around at evangelicalism, and I mean, gosh, you. You know, you study this from a textual standpoint. You've experienced it from being in evangelicalism for thirty plus years. You know different spaces and churches and institutions. And um, are you like when you look at the state of evangelicalism now? Do you see it as like moving in a good direction or a bad direction? And I don't even know how to answer that myself because I see like everything you're saying. I, I hear more and more people saying the same things. So I'm like, oh, that's hopeful. And yet, we still keep seeing just stuff happening, you know? And it's like, well, is it always yeah. that's, is it worse? Is it better? Is it always been like that? And now we have social media. So now we know everybody's little, whatever, you know, issue that yeah. went down. And I don't know. It's hard to, do you
1: have any thoughts on that? Like, yeah. are you Hopeful when you, yeah, I do. No, not at all. 100% no. <laughs> You're not
0: uh, hopeful at yeah. <laughs> No,
1: the gospel of Mark cured me of that. Um, <laughs> uh, so especially in, in um, Jesus' conversation with Peter, like Peter, um, when Jesus says, who do, who do you say that I am? You are the Christ, you know, good evangelical. I have you in my heart. You're the Christ, um, son of the living God. Good job, Peter. Here's where this goes. I'm going to Jerusalem to die. I'm going to the, going to the nation's capital to die. We're not going there to put somebody else on a cross like on January 6th we want to you know hang Mike Pence or whoever. Mm-hmm. It's like no we're going to die. That's how God accomplishes his victory and and Peter rebukes him. And then Jesus says if anybody is ashamed of me and my words like my identity as headed to the cross and my words about we are all going to the cross to die. If anybody is ashamed of that and wants a different agenda an agenda of power or an agenda of prestige or an agenda of influence or impact or whatever um then you you know my heavenly father will not own you on that future day and so to my mind evangelicalism is a is a movement um all oriented around power and prestige and money and influence and impact and um wanting to have, you know, cultural influence and is not oriented on service and self-giving love. And, uh, I think that that works itself out on so many levels. And, and to my mind, I think it is an apostate ideology and it's apostate movement. And I, I have always wondered like, where did it go wrong? So mm-hmm. 25 years ago, this got me into just reading everything I get my hands on, on evangelical history. Mm-hmm. And it's like, back in the tw- in the teens and 20s it's worth going uh, to read Matthew Avery Sutton's book um, American Apocalypse which i think is now replaced George Marsden's Fundamentalism in American Culture oh. as, as sort of the go-to history of evangelicalism what's it called uh, American Apocalypse okay. and he talks about he looks at American evangelicalism through the lens of of kind of prophecy futurism and He's got chapters in there about um, what evangelicalism wasn't anything before the um, beginning of the 20th century. And in the first couple of decades, um, all these denominational leaders got together and were starting to build platforms and doing prophecy conferences together and that sort of thing. And then they started building these social networks and what eventually became evangelicalism. And they're building these networks and organizations and black denominational leaders asked to join. And they they were told, no, like, you, do your own thing. You're not part of this at all. Um, okay. Over the next decade or two, there were debates among these denominational or among these new evangelical leaders. There were debates about whether to, um, you know, to build cultural influence, whether to include – the KKK, in this, these developing networks. Now, they ended up saying no, but it's like there was no debate about including black, black uh, churches and black denominations. That was, that was clear. Um, but there was debate about including the KKK. This is 100
0: so like years ago, so this is still during This is
1: in the teens and 20s. Okay. So it's like, if, um, just from, from our lens of thinking about Paul, and thinking about what Paul says to Peter in Galatians 2 um, about Peter wanting to segregate himself from uh, Gentile Christians in Antioch. Mm-hmm. And Paul says, I confronted him to his face because he stood condemned. Like, So Peter is standing in the place of condemnation because of his segregation of, of a Christian yeah. community. Uh, he later... Says that uh, he, even uh, Barnabas, was led astray. I mean, talk about Old Testament, like apostasy language. He was led astray into hypocrisy. And um, shoot, there's one other phrase that's used. So th- this is all judgment language. Mm-hmm. Um, to me, it's like evangelical culture. Was created from the beginning to be a white culture and a non-black culture. Hmm. So, like over the decades, it's purposefully been woven and created and cultivated as a an all-white middle-class culture. Hmm. Yeah. Um, so, when we ask questions now about why do evangelical institutions face such difficulty, like integrating or, mm-hmm. you know, with with diversity initiatives, well, it's because the the rules that we don't talk about and we sort of have been buried, but are very real. Hmm the structure was purposefully white. Hmm. And the reason I'm saying all that is to say, um, if it's the case that for Paul in his letters, pretty much every letter is oriented around the importance of unity, Mm -hmm. uh, and how it is like say first Corinthians three, 16 and 17. Um, if, you know, that, that the church is the dwelling place of the Holy spirit. And if anybody destroys the church, God will destroy that person. Like, disunity and division mm-hmm. for Paul are not like unfortunate. Yeah, They're damnable. Right. So you have a movement built on something damnable. Hmm. And yes, you've got a ton of Jesus in there. Yeah. But like, that's the very character of like syncretism in the Old Testament, idolatry. <laughs> so it's like, okay, go back to the 10s and 20s. Like the roots of it are rotten. But then go back to Protestantism in America. It's like, Protestantism and Christianity in America were not participating like Jamar Tisby's book they weren't complicit in racism they were the drivers mm-hmm. of of African slavery mm-hmm. and uh, I mean it's like so do I have hope for evangelical evangelicalism or whatever as, as a culture to me, it's apostate. I I hope that as many evangelicals as possible can sort of open their eyes to these sorts of things and see that being Christian is not having the right mental arrangements. It's not having the right mental furniture. It's about cultivating uh, lives and communities of service and hospitality and looking out for the marginalized and fostering communities that look utterly different from the world and characterized by unity and love and mutual rejoicing and you know lamenting with those who are lamenting. But- I still,
0: yeah, no, I, and I'm with you on all that. I, it's hard, it's hard to measure. Like, are we progressing or regressing? Because I even you know, even something like um, divided by faith, that book that came out in 2000, whatever. Yeah, I forgot the statistics. Something like, I mean, don't fact check me on this, but something like 92 percent of churches, something like that would have more than 80% of one dominating ethnicity, you know? So, so multi-ethnic churches were just not happening. Um, but since then I think it's increased, like, like doubled or something. I think there's like now like twice the number of multi-ethnic churches. Um, now is, is it integration? Is it assimilation? Is it multiethnic yeah. groups being assimilated into a white dominated culture or is it genuine integration? Do you have, people of color leading not just following and so there's 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 more intricate questions that need to be had but it does i don't know it seems that i do see positive movement in that direction i do it does seem to me and this is anecdotal but like a more much more profound awareness of a thing called white evangelicalism and how that can be problematic like whereas 20 years ago when no one even i don't know like we didn't even have the conversation so i I don't know like it could a case be made that things are progressing <clears throat> in or even like the, the popular, I mean, this, the popularity of the rise and fall of Mars Hill, you know, where so many people are like, that that kind of Something's model wrong. is wrong. Like this is problematic. Yeah. Let's, let's not do this again. And it's still happening, obviously, probably maybe that's power and platform might still be the majority, but it's, I don't know. Is it wrong to say like there is a greater awareness and at least a desire to kind of, change that or i think i'm just thinking out loud anecdotally Really, i don't know maybe it's i don't know um
1: the questions i have when it comes to all that are like what like uh if you say something like you know isn't it changing for us or aren't we changing aren't we getting better i i always think about like who's the we like if if i'm part of an evangelical church here which so many of them are Mm non-denominational what do i have in common with some evangelical church in wisconsin I mean, are we part of the same thing? Mm-hmm. What unites us? The fact that at the church we get the same catalogs for, you know, evangelical products. Like it's it's really evangelicalism. Kristen Dumay makes this point in her book, which I thought was brilliant. Huh. Um, it's it's a marketing demographic is all it is. It's not it's huh. not a. Um, there's nothing else that unites it except a bunch of friendships of leaders that have kind of shared platforms and. Um, um, constituencies so that they can you know set have mail sent out and solicitations for money
0: you would you not have but common belief as as some kind of some kind of um, glue that holds the thing together or
1: <laughs> I'm not sure what that is really like so what is evangelical theology like ever since this when evangelicalism started to coalesce and this is what all the leaders of fuller were writing books about what is evangelicalism right, yeah. what is evangelical theology? And um, is it in, is it everybody who believes in inerrancy? Yeah, and yeah. so once that was kind of settled on in the 70s and 80s, they had conferences that argued about what that even meant for 10 years. So it's like right, yeah. it, it's kind of a movement that has detached itself from historic Christianity and, and historic orthodoxy and has kind of united itself around um, something cerebral – and not something practical not 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 a way of life characterized by service yeah and i think i think that uh, evangelicalism needs to be that way it needs to be cerebral and intellectual so that it is so that it overlooks and does not notice its social injustices hmm. i mean that's what the kingdom of god is all about in the gospels yeah you know you, you've got people that disagree i mean jesus builds a team of disciples of people who ideologically don't see anything the same way. Yeah. Um, huh. but they, he builds a way of life characterized by service and welcome, you know, to the least of these that, that they're supposed to share in. Yeah. yeah. So, um, that's one of my questions is what actually unites evangelicals and, and does it matter? Um, hmm. but then also I feel like, yeah, I think there are a lot of people that are seeing that there's a lot wrong.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: So yeah. it's, you know, it's yeah. like that. That's good. It's like, hey, hey, y'all, there are idols. We're in this these temples that are laced <laughs> with idols, and it's like, well, I mean, not, you know, half the people want to fight to not do anything about it, and yeah. half the people are like, oh, let's do something about it. So it's like, I feel like that's kind of where we're stuck. Is I think, like the I syncretistic think, way of life. Yeah,
0: I think i I have. I, I think I will always have a very skewed anecdotal perspective on this whatever this thing of evangelicalism is because. You know, I travel a lot, speak at a lot of churches and stuff, and but that's confirmation. Like the people that are inviting me in, hear me talk like this. You know, they they, yeah. I I, so I'm experiencing churches that are you know they may be big churches, small churches, whatever. But they're they're super humble leaders. They're hyper generous. They're they're serving the poor. They're you know they're that's great built into the mission of the church is reaching the marginalized and stuff. But that's so I I could have a jaded perspective that like oh wow this is like the bulk of evangelicalism but people remind yeah. me like well no, you're you have a very small niche or niche yeah. that isn't the norm um because by definition if they're inviting you in then they're probably wanting something a little bit not that you know i don't know yeah <laughs> um totally like i was just at a couple like like huge well yeah pretty big mega churches that were charismatic you know and and of course if they you know kick in worship service you know like just you know but man, yeah, talking to all the leaders, I mean these are just some of the most humble, Christ-like, servant people oriented, doing amazing. This one church was doing more in the community than all the NGOs combined in terms of like caring for the poor and like reaching out to the marginalized Yeah, that's and, fantastic. Even during the BLM riots and stuff, like they were like stepping in in really like great, great ways. Sorry, BLM protests. I know saying riots is I don't. Whatever. I don't want it to touch. Um, but yeah, I mean, during the last couple of years, with all the upheaval, like they're, you know, just created great space. Anyway, I, so it's it's hard because there's there's I wonder there's exceptions yeah, I, to the nor- the norm, I and think I there are. I typically experience the exceptions, and so my viewpoint sometimes can be clouded. Like, and I don't I don't yeah. know if I've ever experienced for like I get emails almost every day from people that experience like serious spiritual abuse and they would describe like their pastoral leadership whatever i'm like i, I literally have never firsthand experienced that and i t- yeah. people will tell me like how their pastor acts or that's whatever or what happened and they're like i'm like that that's so sorry like that's i've been spared from a lot of that or i've been ignorant yeah. to it maybe it has <laughs>
1: maybe i'm just too busy reading books, and I don't see what's going oh, on. Oh yeah, there's a. Well, I, I would. I wonder because I um I know some churches locally that have a real desire to have a, a different way of of being.
0: Yeah.
1: And um I I've um talked with their staffs, talked with their pastors. I mean, it's really exciting. You know, yeah. for me, it's like I go visit. We do um do like maybe two Sundays. You know, pop back out. It's not my church, but I, I'm at part of a different church. Um, but I, my questions are: All right, what does it look like? What does that actually look like yeah. if I were there for two years? What, what I? And and, and yeah. how are they actually doing consistently? And then you know, what's the what's their reputation among other churches in town? Are they are they partners? Mm. Are they paternalistic? <laughs> yeah. I I don't know. I mean, I'm not trying to intentionally be cynical. Um, <laughs> I just think it's. It's easy to sort of pop in different places and see the passion they want to know, yeah.
0: Um,
1: but do I don't know? Sometimes I wonder if America has robbed us of the perseverance to actually think we want to do this, and what we're thinking is a 60 year project, like we're thinking a multi generation yeah. involvement in the city, you know what I mean? What yeah. does that look like, man? Instead partner, of like yeah. we're just gonna,
0: well, I also think you know. W- the the so-called what Dan White Jr calls the the church industrial complex, you know. Yeah. Even even some well-intentioned churches and leaders could still just have this system that yeah. I don't want to say prevents, but but stifles real radical power weakness kind of change, yeah. you know, to where there still is a system of of right. churchness that you know man you got a sermon to prepare you got weddings to do you got meetings all day long and all week long and you have to you know make budget which means you got to figure out you just five wealthy families just left and there's just a system that those
1: three or four big givers want your time (laughs) and they don't want you to talk about this one issue right right so you know that if you talk about that one issue you know that giving is going to go down i mean all this stuff comes into play it's really hard
0: yeah yeah
1: but i i I feel like yeah, there are isolated incidences around this country where people are being genuinely church, completely, completely, yeah, yeah. totally. Yeah. When I, but when I think about what evangelicalism is as a culture, I think it as a culture, uh, it's an apostate culture. Mm. But this or that church apostate can be church. a faithful body of people, like like as an mm. idea, as an ideology, as a as sort of a translocal way of, of, of being Mm -hmm. it's, it's actually been created by marketers and by people wanting to, uh, to sell something and to, uh, increase in their social power. Mm -hmm. Like that was the goal from the beginning in the tens and twenties. So it's like, all of those are anti cross like that. That's just not how it works. So if you're going to actually be a faithful community, I think you have to sort of recognize the ideologies and idolatries inherent in evangelicalism mm-hmm. and leave those behind to be truly Christian. Which could can you name
0: I mean you've kind of touched on so p- platform building, power control, I mean money like or can you get really concrete on what are yeah. some of the what are the pillars of an evangel what are the pillars of the evangelical apostate culture in your opinion?
1: <laughs> the the evangelical industrial complex. The uh, well, I think uh, first of all it would be whiteness. I would say um, because that was intentional from the beginning, um, and all that goes along with whiteness. I, I do want to because I know that
0: that is a controversial way of naming a con. I don't think the concept is controversial. It is what it is, but maybe. Um.
1: Like what is it?
0: Yeah, and, and is calling the that whiteness helpful? Um, I often think of because I, I, I we all I think we all know what that is like whiteness and white evangelicalism. But then when somebody is an individual who's not white who's part of that, what does that leave them? Rather than an independent yeah, so I- an independent thinker of with ind- individual agency, now they're like, well, they're not sure. really a person of color, or they're actually and like. Then we start down a weird road of like.
1: Yeah, well, I, pater- I think them the way I think about it, I think it's really important to name, and what I mean is is just the the lens that was sort of uh, that kind of came over the world as Willie Jennings tells the story in the Christian imagination, like in yeah. the you know 14th century uh, with the colonial project, sure. where uh, over the next several hundred years, the European male was seen as the center of civilization. The, the, the highest point of civilization and everybody with darker skin progressively down to people who were uh, black Africans, um, was increasingly less than, uh, in value to, you know, the white European. So that, that way of seeing and the, that ideology and it's, it's, it's social practices and the arrangement of things in places and cities and towns, um, that that's a whole reality that, that has to be named. Sure. not that white people are wrong or whatever um, but uh, and this is where the powers and authorities are very helpful yeah uh, there, there's been a, there's been a structural reality that we have inherited. No one currently living like voted for it like it's, it's right. not our fault like we chose it. It's like it's been given to us and our lives have been situated according to it yeah so it's like and and that has that has an ideological structural component to it. So that um, hasn't
0: been de- dismantled because like when like what was going on a hundred years ago, like with people saying, no, black people, you're not invited. KKK, let's talk about it. there's not a single listener on the podcast that's like, oh, yeah, that's awesome. Like, you know, like nobody right. today. Yeah. Sure. 99% of people today would think that's appalling. Um, right. And, and that's that's the all that's always a pushback. But I what I hear you and I had Willie on last month and, we, you know, we talked about this and it but. Well, I don't want to put your words in your mouth, but here's what I hear you saying. Let me get your feedback. That that It's so built into the system, and that system hasn't been completely dismantled to where even if individuals wouldn't agree with that 100 years ago, they'd be appalled. There's still stuff in the system that is hard to recognize, and it needs to be completely dismantled.
1: Yeah, it's hard for white people to recognize. Yeah. (laughs) Um, I'm serious. We don't see it because it it, it doesn't – we kind of go with the flow of it. But, but people who are other they feel it and they sense it and they know it you know right. so I'll, I'll give you an example uh, the way that um, the, the con- here are the consequences of a hundred years of event of evangelicalism being white the way that evangelicals did theology mm-hmm. was completely intellectual and and uh, cognitive and abstract completely mm-hmm. so that and here's here's how we've ended up with churches that abuse, we can have churches—I mean, think about how evangelical it is to say this. Yes, um, fill in the blank here. X popular white male figure is a jerk, um, you, you know, uses denunciatory language that would be unchristlike, um, has abusive patterns of leadership, um, is pugilistic in ways that violate everything Paul says in the pastorals, but— He's got solid theology, so it's like, yeah. do you know what I'm saying? Like that the way that evangelical theology has been done over the last hundred years has been entirely divorced from social practice of mm-hmm. of love and justice and kindness and you know truth speaking and generosity yeah. because so that is that is a result of whiteness.
0: Do, um, do you think people that,
1: had to they had to cultivate a theology coming out of slavery, yeah. Um, you had to have a theology that allowed you to be orthodox and faithfully Christian and be freed to not love your neighbor. You can enslave your neighbor mm-hmm. and still be a faithful Christian. So you had to hmm. – Americans had to come up with a theology that allowed for that. And yeah. that theology has kind of come home to roost in evangelical – the evangelical ideological structure. Yeah.
0: Is is that – I guess my – and it is it's a genuine question. Like do do – white evangelical men have the corner market on abusing power. And here's, I don't know, like I, and not that that's not a common human problem, but maybe it's just built into the the white evangelical system more than, is it? I mean, I don't know. I would have to ask my a dozen or so black brothers and sisters and say, do, do black dominating churches, black dominant churches not struggle with this nearly as much as white churches? The the quest for a platform for power, for, not serving the lowly whoever that is social hierarchy and all these things um, i don't know
1: yeah in many I, ways i'm not the one to even you
0: know, answer that i don't know it's a, it's a, it's
1: a well competition uh, you know destructive competition and the desire to have ascendancy over others and all of that that's that's a human it, right. human problem it's just that in evangelical culture who are all the power players who are the presidents of institutions yeah. who are the mega church pastors um, the, the whole culture has been created for the last hundred years, to center white men and give in, for the, for them to sort of gravitate toward power, so that in say conservative evangelical churches, or, or look at conservative evangelical seminaries and colleges, who are who, who make up the faculty, who make up the administration, who make up the leadership in um, parachurch organizations, who who tends to make up the leadership yeah. and, and who are the the power players?
0: And so my um, big question though is was why? Because we we've been on the other side of hiring and. I'll never forget yeah. like being at Cedarville and wanting to hire somebody where we're looking around and we're basically all white and we're like, right. Can we please, and this is a conservative white evangelical. We were like, yeah, can we please hire somebody right. of color? And I feel like that would have been, if there was an equal person that could have signed a doctoral statement, had the degree and everything, if there was a person of color and a white person, I feel like we would have gone with the person of color, even if they were both equal or is that me being totally naive? I just,
1: yes. <laughs> well, in, in this sense, so here are the questions. At a school where um, there were 20 Bible faculty and they were all white men except for one woman, yeah. um, what people of color want to apply to be at that school? Ah,
0: okay.
1: That's one question. At yeah. a school where there are 3,000 undergraduate students and there are nine students of color, <laughs> um, is, is that space in which people of color feel comfortable? Right. Do, they want, do they want to be there? Um, And then also, think about the reasons that we gave, why we don't get any applicants from people of color. Okay, let's look at our doctrinal statements.
0: Right, right, yeah, yeah.
1: And um, compare that to the doctrinal statement of most uh, historic black churches that have an ethos, uh, because they were sort of um, excluded from evangelicalism, White evangelicals tend to look at black Christians who are orthodox as non-evangelicals, even though yeah. the, they have an ethos and a way of being Christian that is yeah. thoroughly resonant with evangelicalism. Yeah. But
0: they voted Democrat, passion you know, or something.
1: <laughs> okay, so and so votes Democrat. Yeah. Um, but that's—I mean, that's okay, not—that's—that's so that's, that's a, that's a that's low not blow. That's not a doctrinal statement. That's not a
0: no one would not get hired on paper. That would come up though. Yeah,
1: um, that's something like that would come up. So oh, how, me, how would let you? Let me, get so we, other, hold on, Preston. Yeah. This is really important. Okay. Look at the doctrinal statement. What what is not in doctrinal statements of historic Black churches, if they have doctrinal statements? Um, because it's important for white evangelicals to have doctrinal statements because we want to, you know, split off and form our own little uh, thing. But what we find in our doctrinal statements is inerrancy because we fight over the cognitive. We don't we don't mm-hmm. we don't get passionate over practice. We get fight get in fights over cognition, and we have rapture, yeah. because we got to get out of here when things get bad. <laughs> And black people start coming into our neighborhoods. We got to get the hell out of here. <laughs> Jesus, get us the hell off this planet. Whole neighborhood's going to hell. Do so, I mean, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. It's like, no, I get it. Yeah. I mean, it, you know, all of that—that that theology is a theology of the white middle class. So, so you're that's saying why you don't that, find that theology in historic black churches? So we had a difficulty hiring anybody because that's just not—that's yeah. not black theology in America. Which is oriented around liberation and love and service and community building
0: and justice. There's no cons- Just- There's very in our doctrinal statement. Here are non-negotiables. There's nothing or little to nothing about justice. You
1: mentioned justice. That's suspicious. Yeah. For white evangelicals. So you're like, saying that that if agenda? you go
0: back to the roots of that doctrinal statement, that that era was more closely tied to the 100 years ago foundation, where it was more explicitly forming a white movement. And so the, right. theolo- the, th- the original theological foundation is much more closely linked to that.
1: Yes, the, it's, the, that's, that was the cultural birth of it, and the theology flowed from it. The mm-hmm. theology basically reinforced it. The theology and culture go together. Mm-hmm. They're mutually reinforcing. So... um yeah, you cannot have a place for justice. Why? Because we, we don't want that. Hmm. We don't we don't want to talk about all that. Um, whereas black churches want to talk about the systems of injustice that affect their communities. Right. So I'm just saying that these are some of the elements of whiteness. Right.
0: No,
1: um. Cool. It's a it's a way. It's 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 not a person. It's a corporate. It, it's a it's, it's from the powers and authorities. It's it's an ideology that has affected us all. It's the way we see the world. Um, there are definite differences between um how evangelical theology is done and how black theology is done yeah and we we faced this in the seminary we faced it at a place you know like Cedarville where we taught um, where theology was categories yeah you know yeah. theology was here are the facts here are all the facts because this is all cognition yeah
0: um,
1: whereas that's simply not how black theology is done I remember reading um
0: Oh, James Cone, the cross and the lynching tree. It's a profound, profound book. Um, and yeah, it's just it's it's a for lack of better. I mean, it's it's just a different like that those categories, and just the way of going about doing theology. It's just it's it's methodologically different, and yet it's still very sound theology. Well, some people don't, you know, whatever. I thought it was brilliant. Um, uh,
1: yeah, well, if, those are the questions. What is What is what what is sound, what is sound
0: theology? theology? I mean, yeah, they're like, like you know, going back to the black theology done 100 years ago was inseparable from uh, lynchings in the South because that was a... In, totally. You know, uh, it, was a, it was such a visible replication yeah. of the cross of Christ, you know? That's and, right. And it was and hard to even country. read the Gospels without thinking of lynchings, whereas that category, obviously, we, we don't even what's a lynching? Like we don't have, that's not, it's not a category, a symbol that we are latching onto as kind of a source of theological reflection.
1: Um, Yeah. Let's see, this is so anyway, back to the the question about uh, evangelicals needing to awaken to whiteness. Uh, We just haven't examined it. Hmm. We, we, we just haven't, we haven't listened well enough Hmm. um, to black Christians and to just to black people, to anybody who's non-white to, to see who we are. like, Hmm. Um, our racialized culture has raced white people. And, and so the question is like, well, how has it like, what, what, what has it done to us? Yeah. Um, Dante Stewart's brand new book is amazing along this line. He mentions MacArthur and Piper. Um, he's, he's a young black man, beautiful writer, um, who was raised in a black Pentecostal tradition in South Carolina, I believe, went to Clemson university to play football. When he was there, he got gravitated into like a white evangelical fellowship. Uh, he and his wife after they graduated, went to a white evangelical church and learned white theology and all that kind of stuff. And, um, was, was stunned when he started to see videos of, you know, over the last seven years or 10 years or so, you know, with the advent of smartphones, everybody's watching these videos of young black men being gunned down and he's traumatized and he goes into his white church and nobody even says a word about yeah, it. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like, like, well, I mean the dissonance. And mm-hmm. so he, he, um, had a revolution in his thinking where he went back and rediscovered, um, his own love for his own Christian tradition mm-hmm. and how he had come to sort of how, how whiteness had worked on him. Mm-hmm. It made him despise his own upbringing. like, Black Pentecostals like the like the church I grew up in um, don't do serious theology. John Piper does serious theology. John mm-hmm. MacArthur does serious theology. So he wants to read all this stuff, um, and he feels good learning it, and he feels good getting the accolades that he's being accepted in this culture. Mm-hmm. Um, but he realized he's actually he wasn't. He wasn't. He didn't belong there because what broke his heart and traumatized him didn't break their hearts and traumatize yeah. them. So, I mean, that, so just take that. All right, let's pull that apart. What's beneath that? Why is that the case? And that's Willie Jennings' question at the beginning of Christian imagination. How come we don't know each other? How come we don't belong to each other? There's something mm. wrong with that. Well, stuff was done way back that created this situation.
0: Yeah.
1: yeah. What is that? Yeah. I think that's, that would be – that's, a, that's a, a conversation we need to have. It's been 402 years <laughs> since we have not had that conversation <laughs> – the current culture has been created over 402 years and so this is this yeah. needs to be a long conversation that we need to have
0: i'm still i am still more hopeful because it seems like more than ever there are people talking about this and at least in my world this is not this again this is my confirmation bias probably a little niche but in my world it's a lot of white christians clamoring to read yeah. tisby and have you know yeah Uh, have this discussion and, and, you know, um, be the bridge. And even like the the amount of people that read Kendi and, and even D'Angelo and others. And, and, you know, um, it's, and again, right now it's maybe a lot of rethinking and that's obviously not nearly enough, but it's, it's it's a, it's a beginning. Um,
1: it's good. Yeah. It's good that we want to have this conversation. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm always wondering, um, I mean, a, a, as a, as a very emotional, you know, 50 year old white man, I'm like, yeah, this is great. Love this. I love that. I love getting at it. Yeah. I always want to know what, what, when black women listen in on these conversations, what do they think? Yeah. What, you know, wh- what is their reaction? Yeah. Um, because they've been, um. you know, black people in America have been sold promises for a long time, sure. especially by interested white people.
0: Yeah. And, and have
1: been. I've been sort of um, uh, disappointed, to yeah. say the least. So it's like, who who gets to say what's promising?
0: Yeah, yeah, you No, know? that's good.
1: That's I'm true. not trying to be a persistent downer. <laughs> 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 I would just rather I, I, you know what? Mark's gospel has just messed with my head too much. It's just like no, but he that, just that, obliterates I, everything.
0: That would be a good. That's, that even that's a very white thing to say. What I what I said. You know, we're having a discussion, there's books being sold.
1: <laughs> yeah. This is great. Yeah. You know, there's so. still there's still in my town, uh, tremendous economic growth. Big white churches, some of them really interested in talking about race until you show up and talk about race. Mm-hmm. Uh, but this is really exciting and promising. Um, and Grand Rapids, and you know this well, is a beautiful town, great place to live, great restaurants, breweries, etc. Um, And so I look out on the church scene, I'm like, yeah, there's people that are really getting it, you know. Um, Grand Rapids, Michigan is still um, one of the most difficult cities to live in for black families. Hmm. And uh, one of the cities in the country that has one of the most persistent problems of black childhood um, hunger. Wow. So it's like, there are a lot of white churches really pumped, but it's like, is that how is that changing those structural realities and there, those real those realities on the ground for you know hungry children mm-hmm. you know
0: there's more white money in that city than any other white yeah. christian money in in grand rapids than probably oh totally anywhere and else. that's
1: uh, yeah and, and so get back to it mm-hmm. you know what are the elements of evangelical culture that are problematic money power um influence prestige and it's like I think we want to share platforms, but do we want to share power? Yeah. We want we want to share our pulpits, but do we want to share power? And that's that's where things get a little bit dicey. And and will we sacrifice our social standing and our power to advocate, mm-hmm. say, citywide, yeah. um, for 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 concrete justice? Those are I think that's where all this comes down. And I'm saying this because I'm I'm trying to figure it out. I'm trying yeah. to like, well, how do I be involved. You know, because it's like I can teach this in the classroom and get excited, but then the questions come back to me. Well, what does this look like? Yeah. <sighs> oh.
0: Hey man, I gotta go. Um. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Dude, it's been so fun. It's always so funny kicking oh, I around. Can keep.
0: Uh, you, you, this is yeah, it's so good. And the fact that you are white saying all this, I think, is more almost more helpful. Um, you know.
1: I'm just at square. I feel like I'm at square one.
0: Yeah. <laughs> No, we all are. I mean, it's... A, it's, it's trying it's, to learn. Yeah, yeah. Your book, uh, Power and Weakness, Paul's Transformed Vision for Ministry, is available where books are sold. Um, people often... Sometimes I'll get emails, hey, where can I buy your book? Like, <laughs> do you know?
1: Dude. how do you live in the modern world <laughs> where can you buy my book in google punch in amazon <laughs> um yeah. yeah so check out the book There's and also you mentioned
0: you mentioned your commentary on mark um the story of god commentary on mark uh dude this commentary i didn't realize 600 plus pages this is a beast
1: yeah dude. it was really big print most of it was in crayon <laughs> no it yeah it was um yeah, well, it took me a long time. Yeah, to, you know, about four years. That's the deadline. But um, yeah, it was a blast. That, that was that really just rocked me tremendously, and I hope to try to represent some of Mark's challenging content. Yeah, because uh, it really is. It's unsettling.
0: So good. Tim, love you, bro. Um, Dude,
1: good wish, to see you, man. Always wish, a good time.
0: Wish we could hang out more than once a year when I'm out in Grand Rapids, but uh, next time I'm yeah, out there, so let's grab another be, pint and shoot the breeze.
1: Cool, man. It'd be awesome. All
0: right, take care.